You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, midweek debrief number 67. And I'm the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you have not already, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please share the podcast with friends, family, and those you think might benefit from this conversation. So I was reading my old friend Friedrich Nietzsche again on health and wellness, which led me down a rabbit trail to finally Sylvie von Douglas Itu, who I know through Sean Fagan and his YouTube channel. If you haven't checked out the Muay Thai guy yet, go check out Sean's YouTube channel. Lots of helpful stuff about Muay Thai. Also then, Sylvie is a Muay Thai fighter based out of Thailand, and she has battled her demons, overcome them, and gotten to a place in life that she could have never imagined for herself even five, six years ago. And from what I've seen of her, what I've heard of her, I think she's a very interesting woman. I think she has a lot to offer to people inside and outside the world of fighting and Muay Thai. And then I found this article that she wrote in November of 2015. It's called A Fighter's Fear, Like Feathers Stroking Your Face, How to Accept It. So I thought, yeah, since we've been talking about fighting and facing your fears and winning and losing and the psychology of competition and the psychology of success versus failure, I thought we would let uh, Sylvie talk to us a bit about that topic in relation to fear. So without any further chit-chat, let's get into it. Sylvie writes, One of a fighter's greatest and most difficult tasks is dealing with fear. I always get nervous before fights, and at the beginning of my fight career, I rejected the word fear to describe what I was experiencing. I did not want to acknowledge it, I would shut it out, because I shouldn't be afraid, because a fighter should be fearless. In truth, I was shutting down that feeling in order to pretend that I was calm and focused. And while I was calm, I was entering into fights too low or flat in my energy. This is one of the benefits of fighting a lot. Fighting is a process, a discovery. I learned maybe 25 or 30 fights in, that I needed that fear and I needed those nerves to help propel me. But I had judged those emotions as being a deficit and out of place. So my focus was on avoiding the feelings rather than accepting them. And when you try to avoid something or make it go away, the focus can become greater than if you just let it be. It takes energy to suppress something like fear or anxiousness. I was maybe a little prideful that I was so calm going into the ring, but there were levels of awareness I was yet to go through. I think right off the bat from the beginning, that's just a great point that she brings up that I've only touched on in my own study and research, but I think the way she frames it here just in this first paragraph is critical I assume to what's coming, but also in my ongoing conversation with myself, which is when I talk to my coach about working on handling my fears about competition, about fighting, one of the things that I've noted is that when I was competing every three months, the degree to which I experienced anxiety and stress about competition was significantly lower than it is now because throughout the COVID guidelines and mandates and restrictions, we weren't allowed to compete. There were no fights to be had. And I got out of that three-month cycle of competition, and I relaxed. Even this morning when I was training with my coach, I realized at about 45 minutes, I start to break down mentally. Whereas when I was competing regularly, I could go for an hour straight before I would start to feel fatigue, whether mental or physical. And so this summer, I'm going to dedicate myself again to building myself back up to that 60-minute window where I can just go for 60 minutes in sparring and not really take a break, not stop for water, but just be in that moment, be in that zone, and enjoy having the stamina and the conditioning to go for 60 straight minutes. 
<clears throat> but realizing that this morning, because he was talking to me about how he could feel me starting to weaken and make, well, I was hesitating after about 40, 45 minutes of rolling. And when I hesitate in the middle of sparring, it's because I'm stopping to think, which when you're rolling against a black belt is not a good thing. And it always, always ends up with me being tapped, submitted. But I start to think because I'm mentally fatigued and my physical fatigue then contributes to my brain's lack of activity and stopping and processing. Okay, if I do this, well, shouldn't I do this next? And in that moment, when I stop to process, he passes my guard, he flattens me out, he submits me. The focus and the calm, for myself anyways, that came with regularly competing meant that I was able to handle that fear and anxiety, put the stress in its proper place, refocus it into my training and into improving and, and making myself stronger mentally or, or physically. But then being out of practice for over a year, being out of that competition mindset for over a year, now it takes a lot of mental energy all of the time for me to not be stressed and anxious and living in the future, July 10th. Because even as I talked to my coach this morning, there's nobody even for me to compete against at Naga this year because of my age and my weight class. So I either have to go up 15 pounds or go down 15 pounds or compete against people that are much younger than I am. So let's say then that nobody else registers in my bracket to compete. That means that I spent over a month anxious, fearful, stressing about the competition. And then in the end, there will be no competition. So what really was the benefit of my fear, my anxiety, my insecurities, if I don't do anything to focus that into something constructive and productive? And of course, we see this with people all the time in their relationships, at work, even trying to decide where to go on vacation. People will get so wrapped up, paralysis by analysis, they call it, you get so wrapped up in thinking through all the contingencies and all of the possibilities and what could go right and what might go wrong and, well, what if we do this but we don't do that? When you're going into a fight, you're doing that constantly because you're training every single day, usually, at least I am, in preparation for the fight. So, of course, it's going to be on your mind because every single day you're putting yourself in a position to actually think about and focus on the future, the upcoming fight. And yet, what I've done in the past is I'll acknowledge it and then attempt to cage it or put it on its leash so that it can't run free in my mind, especially at night or early in the morning. Whereas what she says, right, is rather than not acknowledging it, rather than trying to shut it out because, well, I shouldn't be afraid. I'm a fighter. I need to stay calm and focused. I need to breathe. I need to get past the fear. Instead, use the fear, use the nerves to help propel you forward in your training, in your preparation, and recognize that that fear doesn't have to be a deficit. It doesn't have to be an ugly bystander in your mind. It doesn't have to drive your thoughts into insecurity and anxiety. Instead of trying to avoid the fear, you accept the fear. You accept the anxiety and then you ask, why am I afraid to, to confront this? Why am I afraid to engage with this? Why do I need to push it out of my mind? And will it actually make me a better fighter? Will it make my training better? Will my preparation and my conditioning be improved by avoiding fear, by avoiding these emotions? Because every time I compete, that fear is there. The anxiety is there. The insecurity is there. The second, the second guessing the self-doubt, beating yourself up, tearing yourself down, that's all there. But is it there because you give way to fear or is it there because you try and push that fear aside and pretend like it isn't there? That's, I think, really the difference then between letting fear manage you versus managing your fear. So she continues then with the mental advantage of accepting fear. With much more experience, I learned to just call these feelings as they were, fear and nervousness. But it still took a long time to accept them, to stop trying to shoo them away as being evidence of my failure. 
failure to prepare, failure to be tough, failure to be a fearless warrior. That's all bullshit. It's as ridiculous as believing that someday you'll just reach a point in conditioning when you never fatigue. You can push that line to have great cardio. You can condition yourself to keep going despite pain and fatigue, but you can't get rid of them all together, and you don't want to. Once you accept fear into your reality at that stage, the trick is to teach yourself how to keep going despite fear, how to believe in yourself despite it, and to stop perceiving it as a sign that you are ill-prepared, unready, or unworthy. Before every single fight, I feel a few waves of nervousness and fear, almost like clockwork as the hours draw near to the event. I don't like feeling it, but I accept it in the same way I accept that I'm going to have to pee 100 times prior to getting in the ring. This also is true. (laughs) Never fails. (laughs) Being nervous actually gives me a small sense of confidence because this fear has never stopped me. Not once. It can come with me into the ring, but it can't make decisions for me. It can't be the most important thing. And that includes taking energy and focus to try to chase it away. Three very basic things you can do then. One, breathe slow and long until you are more calm. I do a method, I think it's the Wim Hof method or a variation of it, where I breathe in through my nose for three counts and out from my diaphragm for seven. Deep breath in through the nose, count to three. Let it out from the diaphragm, push it out from the diaphragm for a count of seven. And I repeat that over and over again, like a mantra. So in my mind, I'm saying in for three, one, two, three, out for seven, one, two, and then the seven. Then I do it again, and then I do it again. And eventually, it actually works. It does calm me down. So if you haven't tried it yet, try it. In through the nose for three, out through the mouth, or out of the mouth for seven. From the diaphragm, though, you have to breathe out, push out from your diaphragm, really empty out your diaphragm of air. Number two, find a positive thought that is stronger than the fear. Anything you truly believe about your work, your capabilities, do not push negative thoughts away or deny them. Allow them instead to be supplanted. I think this is so important, and I think this is why I wanted to read this today, is that just kind of going over this quickly and scanning it, there's certain people, and I'm sure you have the exact same experience, but there are certain people that I resonate with, and I don't know why. They just speak to me. Uh, Kevin Ross, the soul assassin, Muay Thai fighter, he's one of those people for me. Um, Gio Martinez, jiu-jitsu fighter, he's one of those people for me. It's just whenever they're interviewed or they write something, and I, I hear it or I read it, I think to myself, they wrote this for me. But not in the sense of they're communicating something from themselves to me, but rather that's exactly the way that I would have said this, or this is exactly the way that I would have written it. And I often joke, it's like we came from the same assembly line. We were, we were manufactured in the same factory. We're brothers from another mother. It's the way that we think. And I think when you hit somebody, hit upon somebody, discover somebody, that you can say that, that the person resonates with you the way they write, the way they talk, the way they make music, whatever it might be. I think those are the most valuable people in the world because they're dialed into something that you're dialed into at that moment. And in a lot of instances for myself then, they're able to put expression to thoughts that I'm struggling with or emotions I'm feeling that I can't express yet. I'm not where they're at in their overall growth and development intellectually where I can express it in the way that they do. And yet when I read it or I hear it, I think to myself, that's exactly the way that I would say that, or that's exactly the way that I would write that if I were in their position. And it resonates with me and it forces me, compels me to take a step back and really think through what they just said and why I agree with it. And I think this is key also as a side note. We all have filters. We all have those hermeneutical lenses, those glasses that we wear when we're reading, listening, and basically what they're doing is they're filtering out truth from lies. Depending on the person and your level of trust, you will have thicker filters or you will lift your filters. 
So there's some authors that I read with almost no filter. I want them to take me wherever they want to go, whether it be Martin Luther, Friedrich Nietzsche, Flannery O'Connor, John Steinbeck, Dostoevsky, Kierkegaard, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus. I don't put up much of a filter with them because I am curious enough about the way they think and how they express themselves that I'm willing to follow them wherever they want to lead me. That doesn't mean that I agree with every single thing they say, but it does mean I want to learn from them as much as I can, which means I don't filter them that much. I trust that they're taking me somewhere honest and real, and I want to go there regardless of the consequences because I want to learn from them. There's other people, as soon as I hear them, my defenses go up. I raise an extra set of filters, my antenna shoot up, and I think to myself, oh, this is bullshit. And then I start thinking through, why is this bullshit? But I think it's very important for everybody to recognize there's some people you can let in pretty far. And there's some people you have to stop at the front door and say, what is it exactly that you're trying to sell me? And that that's not dishonest, it's not disrespectful, it's not dismissive, it's simply recognizing there are certain people I trust to teach me, to lead me, advise me, counsel me, whatever it might be. And then there's other people I'm not quite sure. And in between those two extremes, there are all the people in our lives that we interface with every day who we extend a certain amount of trust to a greater or lesser extent toward. And so with my wife and children, I'm very unfiltered. But yet with my children, I'm more filtered than I am with my wife because they're children. And there's certain things as an adult I can't talk with them about as children without sending them into therapy for the rest of their life. Likewise, though, there's adults that I talk with that I have to be very careful around because we disagree ideologically, politically, philosophically, theologically. And I want to respect them as a person. And I want to have this conversation with them because I like them as a person. But I also know that if I let them in any further, they're not there. They're not ready to go there with me yet. They're, They're filtered too. And therefore, it's not really fair of me. And it's also not fair to myself to let people in to a place that, you know, if they if they react the wrong way, I'm exposed. I'm naked in front of them. I gave them something that they weren't ready to receive from me, and maybe they never are. But I have to constantly, and we do this whether we're conscious of it or not, we're constantly deciding how far we're going to let people in or whether we're going to keep them at arm's length. There's certain people at the gym that I can joke with about anything, and they get my humor because they're on the same level with me when it comes to my humor, which... I have really dark humor <laughs> and really perverse humor, black humor. So for someone to, to really resonate with my kind of humor is a gift to me and a privilege to be around them. And there's other people that they just, they're not there as far as that goes. And when they're around, then I make sure that I, I don't talk that way and I don't act that way. But we're always doing it. We're always adjusting those filters depending on who we're in front of. So likewise, then look at yourself and look at your fear And treat it as a person. Treat it as an acquaintance. Someone that you're familiar with. Maybe it's even someone that you really know quite well. But you don't trust them to open up completely to them or let them come into your life so far that they affect you emotionally. Now, fear being an extremely strong emotion with an immense amount of gravitational pull to it, how do you replace that with a stronger positive thought? Because for myself... This is actually something that I've been doing more and more of late is taking that fear, fear of failure, fear of letting myself down, letting my coach down, letting my teammates down, fear of being seen as a loser and recognizing that's, I'm trying to attach my identity to an emotion and I have in the past and I'm doing it again. So how do I stop myself from attaching my identity, like who I am as a human being How do I stop attaching my sense of identity and meaning to uh, an emotion like fear? Because I'll say to myself, you got clean and sober. You got married and, and broke the cycle of trauma and abuse that's been going on in your family for generations on both sides. You're almost 50 years old and you're still competing in hand to hand combat. You're competing in the gym and you're training against people that are half your age. You've grown into an educator, so you're a coach now and an instructor, and you're constantly striving to become better at that. You've opened your own gym. All of these things to me are positive because they 
are kind of a, a set of benchmarks that say, okay, when you were 23 and strung out on drugs and alcohol and you're trying to commit suicide all the time and you were around people that could have killed you at any time and you couldn't hold on a job and you were getting kicked out of banks, you didn't have car insurance, you didn't have a valid license, there was a bench worn out for your arrest, that's who you were at 23. Now look at yourself at 49 and who are you? You're none of those things. Look how far you've come in life. Yes, between 23 and 49, I have made catastrophic errors in judgment. I have made terrible choices. I've developed self-destructive habits. I've ambushed myself way beyond what I'm capable of counting to. But all of that was me climbing out of the pit that I dug for myself. All of that was breaking a generational cycle of addiction and abuse. That's not stuff that you just devote a weekend to, like fixing up a shed. That's a lifetime job. That's a lifetime commitment to changing everything about yourself for the better, God willing. I'm so hard on myself because I expect so much more of myself because of those successes. And like I keep saying, to quote Nietzsche, set your ambitions so that they outstrip what you imagine is possible for your life. And I do that. And then I accomplish it. So then I say to myself, okay, well, if that, then how about this? And so those positive thoughts are there. They're a part of my ambition, a part of my drive. But at the same time, fear is such a strong emotion. Like I said, it has such a strong gravitational pull that as we've all probably experienced, you can have the best day of your life just compliment piled on top of compliment. Every, every light is green. You got a raise. Somebody took you out to lunch for no reason just to let you know they appreciate you. you you're submitting people round after round after round at the gym. You're on fire. And then you get home and your spouse or your partner or somebody says something negative to you. And the entire day just crashes and burns as if everything else that just happened never happened. The gravitational pull of fear and anxiety, nervousness, is so powerful that I would say that's my primary state of mind most days right now, is fear pushing, 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 pushing. Right now, where I live at in Minnesota, it's in the 90s every day. And in Minnesota, when it's, it's not just hot, it's humid. So it's a wet heat. So you're training in 98 degree heat, 95 degree heat, 93 degree heat, no air conditioning at the gym. And my coach is talking to me this morning. Some people were complaining that it's, it's too hot. And I noted those are the same people that complain that it's too cold in the winter. And I prefer to train with no air conditioning because I think it makes me mentally tougher. And I think it makes all of us mentally tougher. Because when you're dripping wet with sweat, the mat is covered with water. Everyone's heaving and just breathing hard. And you just don't feel strong and you're a little sluggish and slow mentally. That's when you really have to bite down and push through that exhaustion, through that, that, um, that uh, what's it, the exhaustion. You've got to push through it. And if you don't, you quit. But because you're there on the mat with everybody else, you push through. And people encourage you to push through. People work with you when you're tired and exhausted. They, they help you push through. And as a consequence, you leave saying, I'm exhausted, I'm wrung out, but I did it. I did that thing. So next time when I come back, I know I can do this. So I'm going to try a little bit harder. I'm going to build on that success. If I can do that in all of life, now you've started a good habit. You've started a good discipline. You're pushing past that exhaustion, past that tiredness, past the tedium of work, relationships, responsibilities, adulting, all that goes with it, training. But for me, myself anyways, trying to, trying to, that's the key problem too there is trying. Don't try, just do. To find a positive thought that's stronger than fear. It's not hard for me to find a positive thought, but it is difficult for me to find one that is stronger than fear. 
and I will hold them up in front of my face (laughs) and say, but you just did this on Sunday. Like you just accomplished this. This is so much bigger than your fear. And I'll, and I'll agree with myself. I know it's true, but then the fear comes and it just, it pushes against me like that heat in the gym. That's what I meant. It just bears down on me like that oppressive heat in the gym when I'm, when I'm training. And the difference then between fear for me and what happens in sparring in the gym or in a, in a fight is that in a fight, there's something physical and tangible for me to get a hold of. There's a person in front of me. Fear is this emotion that is inside of me. And even if I reached in and ripped out my heart, that would be the only way that I could escape fear. And since I'm big into self-preservation, I'm not going to do that. But think about your work. Think about your capabilities. Think about your ambitions. Think about what you have or haven't accomplished. And then don't push the negative thoughts away. Don't deny that they're real. Instead, supplant them. Let the fear be, be there, as she writes, because it's okay and it's natural. But like I've talked about too, I agree with all three of her points. I think they're valid. I think they're important. I think they're worthy of, of memorizing and putting into practice every day in any situation where you're experiencing fear and stress. The fear is there. I don't have to let it be there. In fact, I would like for it to not be there most of the time because it's annoying to me that it's constantly pushing these thoughts into my head because they're not real. They exist in the future and the future doesn't exist yet. So they're not real. So I'm giving space in my mind to people and events that are not real. And I know fear is natural. I know that. I accept it. I acknowledge it. (laughs) But there's the but. I hate fear. I loathe it. I despise it. I, I, it's a monster. It's a demon. I just, I hate it. If I have a top three enemies list, fear is top two, probably top, just top of the list. Because emotionally I can deal at this point in my life, I have pretty much dealt with all the other emotions and how to work with them, acknowledge them, move through them, supplant them, anger, guilt, even shame. Like I've dug down into my own shame, exposed it and, and killed it. Put a, put a stake right through its vampire heart. But fear, fear just dies hard, man. It's like the Terminator. So breathe slow and long until you're calm. Find a positive thought that's stronger than the fear and supplant that fear with that thought and let the fear be, be there because it's okay. It's natural. But also, if the fear doesn't just disappear, it's not supposed to. <laughs> it's not going to. And I think that's kind of her point up to, the, up to now, right? Is that if you try and deny the fear and say, well, it shouldn't be there or I don't want it to be there anymore, so I'm going to force it to go away. I'm going to lock it up in a cage and domesticate it. That's like going to the zoo and putting your face against the glass in the tiger cage and saying to yourself, well, it's okay because the tiger's in the cage and she's domesticated. No, she's a wild animal that's locked up in a cage and she's probably heavily medicated on Xanax. That's what they do to the animals at the zoo, by the way. They put them on uh, opiates to keep them uh, docile and not attack each other or people. They do that at SeaWorld too. That's why when the uh, doses get mixed up, that's when the uh, orcas kill their trainers because the medicine wears off and they're hyper-intelligent creatures, so they do what they do. So Sylvie writes, if you were a, oh, by the way, since I just thought bombed out, that's what we do to escape having to deal with our fears and anxieties. The United States is the most heavily medicated culture in the history of civilization. How do we deal with our fear and anxiety? What is quote unquote normal for us? What's okay to do when we're afraid or we're ashamed or we feel guilty or we're angry? Take some medicine, man. Pop a pill. Allopathic medicine in the West is the biggest scam of the 20th century. And I've been doing a lot of research and I've 
deep dive into this with John D. Rockefeller and Louis Pasteur, Bachamp. The commodification and converting medicine into an industry, into a business by Rockefeller has got to be one of the greatest scams of the 20th century because basically we're supposed to be sick 24-7, 365 so that the medical industry, the pharmaceutical industry can profit off of our illness and our disease. And so now in the present tense, if you have emotions, just if you have, you know, normal God-given emotions, there's a pill for you. Don't want to deal with your fear? There's a pill. Don't want to deal with anxiety? There's a pill. Oh, you get angry really easy? There's a pill for that. Oh, are you shy? There's a pill for that. Rather than confront ourselves, rather than do what Sylvia is doing here, describing how she, she confronts and interfaces with her fear and what I'm trying to do with my emotions all the time too. Instead of that, which is abnormal in American society, instead we are to medicate ourselves. And as an aside to the aside, I wonder how many people who are out in the streets rioting and burning down cities are on medication for mental illness. Because there's been some studies that have come out of late that say the numbers amongst white females who are involved in these leftist movements, at least 30% are mentally ill and are on medication. And I'm trying not to cast dispersion. I'm not being pejorative. I'm just raising the question, how many people in our society who are on medication so that they don't have to experience different emotions, don't have to face themselves, confront themselves, take ownership of their choices take responsibility for their choices, accept the consequences and live with them. I wonder how many of those people who refuse to do that are also medicated. Something to think about, I think. Especially if you yourself are medicated and you're also a martial artist. And if you feel like you're struggling, and I'm not saying that there's no such thing as mental illness. I'm not that guy. Because I know people who are legitimately mentally ill. I've worked with mentally ill for a majority of my adult life in one way, shape, or another. There's definitely legit mental illness. But I think those people were used as an excuse, as a justification, and as a cover to medicate people who are not mentally ill. They were just having a bad day, or a bad breakup, or were in a bad job, or were just surrounded by shitty people. And instead of saying, you know what, you should probably leave your environment, switch jobs, go back to school for different training, find new friends, find a different partner. Instead of all that and going through the process of loss and recovery and growth, instead, here's a prescription. And if that doesn't work, I've got a prescription for your prescription. And that's why most people in America are on three or four drugs right now. A majority of Americans are taking three or four prescriptions simultaneously. That's an actual fact. So back to, the, back to the book, as it were. If you are a fighter or are a serious student of Muay Thai, I encourage you to do some mental training. This is what I do. And there's a link that I will enclose, include in the show notes. But the basic principles above are a simple place where you can start to take hold of fear. In fact, I wonder if part of my struggle is that I don't treat fear the same way that I treat my opponents when I fight. And that instead I try and find my way around fear, which is funny because my second favorite book that I recommend to people is called The Obstacle is the Way, which makes me a hypocrite. And yet I'm aware of that. Doesn't change the fact. <laughs> it's a constant, it's a work in progress. A simple place you can start is to take hold of your fear, grapple with your fear, wrestle with your fear, and recognize like Jacob at the Jabbok wrestling with God, it's not a fight you're just going to win. You're not going to just throw your opponent fear to the ground and submit it. It's going to fight. It's going to scratch and claw and kick and scream. It's going to fight you tooth and nail. But remember that that fear is you. Your emotions are not a separate thing from you. They are you. They're a part of what makes you, you. God gave us emotions. They're a godly gift. And we treat them as if they're separate from us, as if they are candy in a vending machine. And we can just pick and choose which one we want. And then we just put in a few coins and that's what we get out of it. 
our emotions are what make us us. And our emotions are no more, we're no more able to separate our emotions from ourselves as we are our intellect or even escape our own bodies and become spirit beings or something. Our emotions are what make us us. So when we're wrestling with our fear, we're wrestling with ourselves. And that, I think, is my primary struggle, is I'm wrestling against myself. And there's nobody that I know better and more intimately than me. So when I try and replace fear with a positive thought, with a positive accomplishment, that little voice, that little man that lives in my head rent-free, who loves to scream at me about what a loser I am, remind me of all my past failures and screw-ups, that guy, I can't get him out of my head. I can't get rid of him because that guy is me. And so the great battle that I experience every single day, whether I'm going to the gym or not, whether I'm teaching or not, the battle that goes on inside me all the time, no matter what I might look like externally, internally, I'm wrestling with fear. I'm wrestling with self-doubt. I'm trying to shut up the little man that lives in my head rent-free that shouts lies at me all day long. Give you an example. I can look at my accomplishments and say to myself, you're almost 50 years old. You're going to be 50 in a month. You train with these young athletes, these savages, these absolute animals, male and female, that I respect, that I have nothing but honor for, that I revere. And some of them I love more than anybody I've loved in my entire life other than my wife and kids. And that alone should be enough for me when they say, well, you're a badass, you're a hard ass, you're tough, you're a bad MF. And I'm like, yeah, 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 but you're, you're really a badass. You're really a bad motherfucker. Because that little man that lives in my head says, that's not true. They don't really know you. If they really knew you, they wouldn't say that. Now, is the proof in the pudding, the fact that I show up and train every day and I show up and teach, is the proof in the pudding that I've progressed through the belts faster than I imagined was possible for me because I put in so much work and effort? Is it that I've already fought over and over and over again and put myself in that situation? Is it any of that? Is it that I opened my own gym and I have my own students? Is it any of that? No. Because that person that lives in my, my head rent-free takes every one of the things that I just said to you and shoots them down with something more terrible. Something from my past that I did that's terrible or something that I thought the other day that's horrible. And says, oh yeah, that's a great accomplishment. But don't ever forget, you're also this guy. You did that. You said this. And so for me, the great struggle isn't against my opponent. It's not even really against fear. It's that I recognize that fear is what makes me me. It's me. I'm wrestling with myself. And I can't escape myself. So no matter where I go, there I am. Whether I'm on the mat, in the cage, in the ring, at the gym, at home, doesn't matter. I am who I am. And as the old cartoon uh, comic strip Pogo said, we have met the enemy and he is us. So this passage below, she writes, is from a book my brother gave me for Christmas last year. The author describes how the effort toward trying to chase fear away is counterproductive. I'm still on the path of development as a fighter, but the quote talks about what may be beyond simple acceptance of fear. A time when the fighter may grow to just feel fear, quote, like feathers stroking my face. So this is from the book that she's describing. If you've seen the proposition, you will know what I'm talking about. It is a grim and extremely violent Western, brilliant but horrific, set in the Australian outback in 1880. It was filmed on location in the middle of summer, and the actors had to cope with blistering heat and huge swarms of flies constantly buzzing all around them. Now, obviously the actors couldn't keep waving the flies away or they'd ruin all the shots. They had to let the flies crawl on their faces without reacting. This also made it more authentic. The historical advisors on the film believed that people in that era would have been so used to flies crawling all over them, they wouldn't have been constantly shooing them away. One of the lead actors in the film, Ray Winstone, said he'd always wondered how those lions in wildlife documentaries 
seemed so oblivious to all the flies. However, after a few days of filming, he got used to them. Soon he was able to let the flies be there without being bothered by them. He said, They felt like feathers stroking my face. That is an amazing attitude shift, isn't it? Under normal circumstances, under normal circumstances, we try as hard as we can to get rid of flies. We swipe at them, swat them, and spray them. We may install clever traps, put up screens, and do whatever we can to keep them out of our houses. And this is only natural. We know they are dirty and carry germs, and that if they contaminate our food, we can get sick. So of course, we hate the idea of letting them crawl on us. And yet, when Ray Winstone diffused from all those thoughts and mindfully noticed the actual sensation of flies crawling on him, he discovered it was nowhere as bad as he expected. And that is from a book called The Confidence Gap, chapter 15, Plenty of Space. Got to write that down for myself. It's a good book. At least that, that section sounds good. I read this chapter while lying in bed the other night, she writes. It happens that The Proposition is one of my favorite movies, and the consideration of flies is, for me, minuscule compared to the overall and considerable grit, violence, and quiet despair that is the general ambiance of the story itself. However, the flies are a perfect real-world example of one's mentality determining experience. At one of my fights, I sat under a hot blanket covered in sweat, tie oil and Vaseline, while a doctor stitched closed a cut on my forehead, and all I could think about was the swarm of mosquitoes that were still eating me alive, despite all the gunk on my limbs and the blanket covering me. It's this tiny thing, this pestering thing, that overrides even more significant matters, like getting your face stitched closed without anesthetic. All I remember are the mosquitoes. And yet, over time, one becomes desensitized to these pests. You stop shrieking every time you see a rat on the rails of the subway in New York. You don't swat at the flies anymore. And instead of being this impossible torture of disgusting creatures buzzing around your face, you simply accept their presence and the actual sensation is like feathers stroking your face. The author's argument here is that fear is a natural and inevitable part of life, just as insects or dust or rain is. Because so much of our modern live, lives is about comfort, we are fortunate to spend very little time being uncomfortable. Pain, sadness, and fear are uncomfortable. When we feel these things, we want to find ways to stop feeling these things. In fact, the discomfort of these emotions even makes us think that something is wrong, so we try to avoid the feeling. We swat at the flies, rather than letting go of the idea that we can get rid of them and just accepting their presence. Exactly. Rather than accept our emotions, confront our emotions, interface and engage our emotions, we medicate them away because they're like flies. And so we do everything we can to trap them and to shut them out of our lives. So now she concludes, there is nothing wrong with fear. I have fought 130 fights. Now and in three days, I'll have another one. I still feel nervous before fights, every one of them. There is no reason why I should believe that desensitizing myself completely to this emotion would be a benefit to me. But focusing on this emotion, I know is not helpful. Consider the stomach-churning feeling of standing in line for a roller coaster. I don't like roller coasters, but I've been on probably a dozen of them. When I'm waiting in line, I go through boredom, distraction, and talking with whomever I'm at with the park, or at the park with, and nervousness and fear with thoughts like, why am I doing this? How can I get out of this? I tolerate these feelings because I tell myself it will be fine, but I never wonder to myself why I'm feeling this nervousness. It's obvious. I'm about to go on a ride that is designed to give me a thrill. People pay good money to watch scary movies, go to haunted houses, jump from incredible heights. We don't wonder why we are feeling scared or nervous, right? I mean, exactly. <laughs> when they do these things, we don't wonder, well, why are they scared? Why are they nervous? Because it's a haunted house. They're jumping off a cliff. They're watching a scary movie. 
And yet when we're about to enter into a fight, whether it's a fight for a relationship, to preserve a relationship, or to separate from someone who's toxic and unhealthy, whether it's a fight for our job, whether it's an actual fight against another human being, why do we then say to ourselves, why are you afraid? I don't understand why you're so afraid. You're about to fight another human being. That's, well, it's actually totally normal and totally natural. And it's part of the history of human life and human civilization is how we're wired. But again, in the present tense, because we're number one, um, afraid of confronting our emotions and even like acknowledging that we have these emotions. We're afraid of fighting because we don't want to accept the consequences of fighting for something. We don't want to be accountable for that. The victim culture that has completely taken over the public imagination doesn't obviously benefit that. Everything, at least in my life, everything in, in my ecosystem is rigged toward fear and running away from fear and pretending it's not there or ignoring it until it goes away. It's a very upper Midwestern thing to do. And yet, you know, I guess I never really said this to myself. This is how, as my wife says, you're the dumbest smart person I've ever met. I've never thought of it the way that Sylvie puts it. So thank you, Sylvie. I think that's a great way to say it because one, fear, doubting yourself, second-guessing yourself, experiencing, experiencing nervousness is, is a sign that you lack confidence. No matter how confident you are, you still lack that confidence of, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to knock this person's head off. There's nothing they can do to stop me. That's overconfidence, right? And when we, you, know, you hear people talk about how they went into a fight and they were too confident, they were too cocky. And they got knocked out or they were defeated because they were overconfident. But being underconfident, same thing. You lost before you ever set foot in the ring. Rather than just acknowledge, you're supposed to be afraid. You're about to get into the ring, step on the mat, whatever it may be, with another person. And you're going to fight. And it's important to you. That's why you're doing it. And you've trained and you've put in a lot of time and energy to get ready for the fight. This is important. If it wasn't, you wouldn't be doing it because it demands so much of you. <laughs> so then why are you doing it? Because I love it. I just, I do. I love it more than anything I think I've ever done in my life. And the feeling of satisfaction, winning or losing, that I walk away with is incomparable to anything else in my life to this point. And so I think for myself anyways, I have to get out of the habit of saying, I hate this. I hate this. Why am I doing this? I hate this. Why do I do this to myself? I do it to myself because I love it. What I hate is I can't just drive by, pick up my trophy and go home, right? Wouldn't that be great if you could train for three months, show up at the venue and they just give you the belt? Here you go. You deserve this. You earned it. We're not going to make you fight. Oh, fantastic. But how long afterwards would you stop training, knowing that every time you showed up at the venue, they were just going to give you the belt? How long until you didn't take it seriously anymore? How long until you moved on to something else? Without that fear to motivate you to get ready, to get yourself conditioned, to get yourself in the right place mentally, emotionally, and physically for that fight, without fear it's not going to be very long before you don't fight anymore. Before you don't fight for anything anymore, actually. I see this all the time as a pastor. People that aren't afraid of losing their spouse, aren't afraid of their kids growing up and not respecting them, not being around. People not afraid of falling into addiction and other self-abuse. People not afraid of being exploited and taken advantage of by their boss or their work. People not afraid of how other people think of them and their reputation. Everything we do, I think, everything we do is motivated by fear. Fear of shame, fear of guilt, fear of blame, fear of losing our temper, losing control of our emotions, fear of being seen for who we truly are by others. We're constantly in a state of fear. And it's exhausting because we try and deny it, like she says. We try and run from it. We try to, to explain it away. We try to cage it, domesticate it, medicate it, 
anything we can do to not deal with fear versus why are you afraid? Well, because I'm, I'm going to fight this person. Oh, okay, then that's natural. That's good. That's a good kind of fear. You should be afraid. Now take all that and use it as fuel to train, to condition, to get ready so that when you show up, win or lose, you are ready versus that fear managing you so that when you showed up, you had already lost before you ever set foot in the ring. So we look at horror movies, we look at haunted houses, we look at jumping off of a cliff, we look at jumping out of an airplane, whatever it might be. And we say, well, of course, that person's afraid. They have good reason to be. It's scary. But then we don't allow ourselves the same freedom to acknowledge getting in a fight with another person is scary because I don't know what the outcome's going to be. I can visualize it. I can imagine it. I can strive for it. I can fight for it. But my opponent gets a vote too. God, I love that paragraph. Thank you, Sylvie. That is super helpful. Why would we wonder why we're scared or nervous when standing at the precipice of getting into the ring to fight someone who has every intention of beating us? It's a perfectly reasonable thing to feel every time. There is nothing amiss when you feel nervous for a fight. But if you obsess over it and try to avoid the feeling like swatting the flies, you are putting a great deal of energy into something that you don't have a lot of control over. If you accept the fear as part of the process and just be sure not to hold on to it, acknowledge its presence and its purpose, but focus on more important things like things you can control, then you can still experience the feeling without being pestered by it. It's not a buzzing fly, but the tickle of a feather. And that is the end of a fighter's fear, like feathers stroking your face and how to accept it by Sylvie Von Douglas E2. As I said, I'll include a link in the show notes. Thank you to Sylvie for writing this. It's super helpful for me. I hope it helps you too. Also, thank you for all you do to support the podcast and, and all the feedback and encouragement that you give to me. I truly appreciate it. And as always, I, I do what I can to constantly improve the quality of the podcast and the quality of the content. I'm not always the most well-spoken person. Sometimes I speak a little bit too quick and trip over my own tongue. Sometimes I don't always express myself the most effectively, but I'm constantly working to improve that, to become better as a podcaster and as a speaker, along with everything else in my life that I strive to become better and grow from and become stronger. So I hope that it's a benefit to you. I hope this helps you. And as I've said before, whether you agree or disagree with me, I hope that I get you to think and question your own presuppositions. Because if nothing else, even if you disagree with me, and it forces you to talk out why you disagree with me, you're going to be better for it in your own way. So I appreciate you for that as well, too. Thank you for listening. Uh, I got nothing else. So I will talk to you again next week for a brand new podcast. See you later, weirdos. Peace.